in the horrifying state of science in the COVID narrative is just beyond comprehension. So you got a guy like Jay Bhattacharya, who with Kaldorf and Gupta put together the Great Barrington Declaration. Hmm. And these were elite scientists of unquestionable importance in the world. Yep. And they basically said, we should handle this pandemic like any other pandemic. This whole lockdown stuff is crap. And they got a million signatures and they got annihilated. Hello, fellow risk takers, and welcome to my worst investment ever. Stories of loss to keep you winning. In our community, we know that to win in investing, you must take risk. To win big, you've got to reduce it. Ladies and gentlemen, I'm on a mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. To join me, go to myworstinvestmentever.com and sign up for the free weekly Become a Better Investor newsletter where I share how to reduce risk, create, grow, and protect your wealth. Fellow risk takers, this is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stotts from A. Stotts Academy, and I'm here with featured guest, Dave Collum. Dave, are you ready to join the mission? Yes, I am. It should be fun. <laughs> well, you know, life should be fun, don't you think? There's so many parallels. I, I want to introduce you to the audience. There's parallels between you and my father and your grandfather and, you know, other things. But Dave Collum is a professor of organic chemistry at Cornell University who developed an interest in markets, which in turn led to an interest in geopolitics. He enjoys the human folly of it all. He has a natural predilection to be contrarian, which makes him a denier on almost all hot topics. Dave, take a minute and tell us about the unique value you bring to this wonderful world. Well, one of the reasons I'm able to do that is I went into an odd area of chemistry. Well, I was always a little crazy. So as a kid, I, you know, I'd tell my dad I was going water skiing and instead go skydiving and things like that. But, <laughs> but I went, I went from being drug, sex, rock and roll in high school to being a genetics major at Cornell to deciding to get a PhD in organic chemistry, all of which therefore is sort of unusual. And then when I got to Cornell as an assistant professor, I switched fields again. And so I had just sort of got my feet on the ground as a chemist. And, and, and so I was only in grad school for about two and a half years. That's a, a story in itself. And so I got, got a job at Cornell at the ripe old age of 24, arrived at 25. And then, uh, and then I switched fields again from a, one subdiscipline of organic to another. So probably not of interest, but I was totally unqualified to do it. So it was a mathematical <laughs> field and I had no math. So to give you an idea. It turned out it was a good move. The field was essentially unoccupied and people thought that I either would fail or no one would care or whatever. And it turned out to be wrong. So it was a perfect contrarian move. It was a bottom call by, by finance standards. And, you know, over the years, I had strong contacts with big cap farm and stuff that worked really well. But again, no one saw it coming. And, and I'm now 42 years in, I'm not too far from retiring. And, um, what it does is it, it's not the science that sets me up for talking about finance. I, I, there must be advantages that I'm not aware of. But um, the field I went into, almost without fail, almost every project every year of my entire adult life turned out to show that someone was completely full of crap. And sometimes it was amazing where, you know, Nobel Prize is given for this class of molecules and we study them and find out they're not worth the shit, you know, that sort of thing. And so, and so I reached a point where I had no trouble believing that experts could be dead wrong. 
And this is in a field where they're trying to get it right. Mm. So you get into finance and geopolitics and, you know, you have the pathological liars grow on trees. Right. And so in, in finance, at least it's overt. You're dealing with people who are trying to make money off you. So you don't trust them. But the politics gets very strange. And I would say it has reached a point of pathology at this point. I think mm. politicians have always been bad people at some level. But I, I can't name a single narrative for which I believe the standard story. Just nothing, nothing holds up the scrutiny, in my opinion. And so I was at a recent investment conference and they said, give us a give us a conspiracy theory. Where there's a panel of three of us, two are economists. Give us a conspiracy theory. Don't defend it. Let the audience just ask you questions about it. So my first answer was um, little green men live in my phone and come out and molest me late at night when I sleep. That turned out, I said, no, no, I'm just kidding. And I said, academia is full of liberals. I said, no, I'm just kidding about that too. And then what I said was most of the shootings are sovereign states. Most of these mass shootings are sovereign states. And, and I actually believe this. So whether it's Las Vegas, which I have no doubt, Uvalde, you name it. I, I think that a good percentage of them are not what they appear to be. I think the crazy drug addled teen shooting everyone is not the story. And people were intrigued by it. And I can make the case on some and others. I just say there's just too many, too similar, too parallel. I love going outside the box, especially in class. And then I said, look, I need you to not believe everything you're told. I need you to be willing to go out and say, what if this story is actually wrong? And I present examples in class. And so for me, it's a natural thing to go against everybody. Mm. And, and usually you're right. <laughs> <laughs> That's the problem. And then, as you know, every year I write an annual review, which is it started as a handful of pages for friends and family sort of things at a, at a prudent bear website run by Doug Noland. And then it just got bigger. And then one year I decided to do a serious job and it just clicketh on. And so every year it's gotten bigger and bolder. And I I've got a friend who's a, one of the prominent gold bugs. I think you'd know him. I don't know if I should name him. Who's actually binding them all. He wants me to sell them all on Amazon. I, I'm still, he's, he's working real hard to help me and I'm being a lazy bastard. And I noticed you published that. What, the, the link that you sent me of that was Peak Prosperity. Yeah, it's where it's published at Peak Prosperity. It's also my, my pinned tweet if you're a Twitter fan. Yep. And so every year I write about human folly. And the problem is, is that it's just gotten crazier and crazier. And it's reached a point where it's just, it's also no longer folly, right? It used to be funny things. And I go, oh, look at this guy, you know, you know, made off or whatever. It was just comical to me, right? But now we're bombing the hell out of people and we're doing things that are really bad. And so I wrote this year, I would say the real focus of the whole thing this year was Ukraine. Mm. And I took... I hesitate to say it this way, but I will because I, I like to provoke. I took the pro-Putin stance. Mm. And I think I make the case. And in no way do I try to say Putin's a cupcake and a nice guy. And, you know, but I think you can put it this way. I can easily make the case that NATO is bad. Mm. That's an easy case to make. NATO has been a problem for, for a dozen years at least. Right. And that's not being covered by the media. And I, I got a whiff of it right away. And I had been kind of intrigued by Putin since 15. I think I picked up on it after the, the Ukrainian coup, which was CIA led coup. 
and Putin was sort of peripherally involved in that because it influences Russia. Mm. And I'd, I'd become kind of a bit of a Putin follower because the guy intrigued me. I mean, he yeah. was unbelievably direct. Yeah. So unlike every other politician, you'd ask him some tough question and he'd give you a straight answer. And you go, whoa, I didn't see that coming. So there's nothing about Putin that's a madman. He might be a sociopath because he did grow up in Russia. And, <laughs> and you know, it's like it's a rough place, but he's not crazy. And he's making incredibly rational moves, in my opinion. And I believe that you that NATO could have stopped the war and, and they yeah. didn't. They chose not to. And so and- there's enough information out there to make these kinds of conclusions. It's been surprising actually to see how people are minds are directed. But I I looked back a while ago, I was looking at what was happening in 2008 and in the April, I think it was the Budapest conference where the US delegates were putting pressure on NATO to announce that Ukraine and Georgia were going to come into NATO. And I believe it was Merkel and maybe it's a cozy at the time that were saying, you know, that were against that because they knew what that could, you know, it would it would awaken, you know, Russia. And then to see the statements coming out of Putin right after that. And I think it was Lavrov also at the time. And then to see in August of 2008, the kind of invasion, I, I wouldn't call it a takeover of Georgia, but there was a tactical invasion into particular provinces to protect the Russian speaking people there in Georgia, but also obviously to say, no, we've already said that it's, we don't want to see Georgia in NATO. And so there was a, you know, it was a pretty clear playbook that it already, you know, was already unfolding. So it wasn't that much of a surprise what happened. And I think the other point that I would make related to what you said is that Putin, if you, I mean, you just listen to a Q&A session of Putin. He'll go on for Stop three it. hours. And you know, it, it, there's translations of them out there. And it's like, wow. It's pretty amazing yeah. when you listen to it. I mean, yeah. he's not a dummy. He's got to. I mean, you put him out for three hours against Biden. And I think you're going to find that he's got three hours. Biden would be down for the count in one yeah. minute. Yeah. I mean, it just wouldn't even be close. So therefore, so, so, so it, the other thing, what you have to do to understand the Ukrainian war, you have to go all the way back to the collapse of the Berlin Wall and the collapse of the Soviet Union. And what what you have to know is, is that NATO promised Putin when, for example, Germany was reunifying and Soviet Union wasn't the only group that was afraid of that. Big Germany has been causing trouble off and on through the years. Right. And NATO basically promised the Soviet Union, look, you don't reassemble the Warsaw Pact and we won't we won't push NATO eastward. The first push was Clinton in 97. And, you know, some of it you might say is kind of forgivable, but George Cannon, the very famous, famous cold warrior, said it was moving NATO eastward was the worst political policy blunder in U.S. history. Mm. And so Guys who you don't think of as wimpy left wingers were saying this is a terrible move to do. So we just kept moving NATO east. And what people, for example, don't know is that there's been a civil war in Ukraine for a decade now. And Western Ukrainians have been slaughtering the ethnic Russians in Ukraine for about a decade. And they don't know that that legitimate Nazis, not metaphorical Nazis, legitimate Nazis have been running around Ukraine causing all sorts of carnage at the the level of sort of drug cartel 
level for years and that the CIA has been funding these guys and arming these guys and causing so much trouble. So if you, you dig into the pre-2022 history of Ukraine, you find nothing but civil rights violations. You find mm. horror stories. All you have to do is search Azov Battalion on Twitter. And you will find just nightmare after nightmare. You don't even have to do a time-filtered search. Yeah. You can find nothing good about the Azov Battalion. And yeah. these, these are the freedom fighters. These are the guys we are using to fight the Russians. Let me ask you a, a question about America since I've been gone for so long. One of my questions, I have, I have two questions. The first is, has, has anything gotten better in America, number one? And number two is, what is the state of the scientific method in America, is it still allowed? Can it survive the onslaught of, I don't know, social media, political correctness, as we used to call it, wokeness, as they call it. So what has gone right and gotten better in America? And what's the state of the scientific method? Well, a lot of it has gone wrong. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that goes right, I guess. But, you know, years ago, I started arguing that, that the Internet was our biggest hope and our greatest enemy. I have in recent years concluded that we've lost that fight, I think. Yeah. And now then along comes Elon Musk and you get this little glimmer of hope that maybe something's going to happen. Right. But it really appears as though the digital world is is now flat out an authoritarian vehicle to control the masses. And we love it. Right. I mean, we're all mm. you and I are talking through it. Yep. Right. Yep. But. With that said, the propaganda mechanisms that it provides is just extraordinary. So the Ukraine war, you will not find a shred of discussion about the Ukraine war anywhere but uh, Tucker Carlson, right? maybe Bill Maher. You will find guys like Greenwald and Taibbi and independent journalists doing it. But the, the mainstream network has left it alone for the most part. The vaccine was truly an extraordinary story in that what it did was and I, I don't even know what the purpose of it was at this point. So I'm in a Zoom group of, that's a, mostly doctors, but there's lawyers, there's, na there's a national security analyst there, there, there's all sorts of type. Anyone who's famous in the battle, if, you, if you've been following the vaccine slash ivermectin yep. slash COVID battle, anyone in that who's famous for going against that narrative is somehow passed through or in this Zoom group. It, mm. It's an amazing group. And in the whole horrifying state of science in the COVID narrative is just beyond comprehension. So you got a guy like Jay Bhattacharya, who with Kaldorf and Gupta put together the Great Barrington Declaration. Hmm. And these were elite scientists of unquestionable importance in the world. Yep. And they basically said, we should handle this pandemic like any other pandemic. This whole lockdown stuff is crap. And they got a million signatures and they got annihilated. Gosh, I and didn't even know they got a million signatures. That's amazing. They got a million signatures, yeah. Now, they might not all be legit yeah. signatures, but you get the idea, right? Yeah. I'm sure it was not 20. And I was listening to a He was at Cornell two days ago, and I missed it. Mm. But I am getting the link to the thing. But in another podcast, he was talking to someone, and he said he was afraid for his well-being walking through the Stanford campus. Oh, unbelievable. And... Stanford should just shoot itself, right? The Stanford authority should just dissolve the school if that's really the case. I mean, if there were some guys, I'd be out there with a shotgun or a rifle or something defending the guy if that was a problem at Cornell. Mm. And, and I, I, I never felt risk at Cornell, even though once I got canceled, I got my ass canceled off one day, one day, about two weeks worth. 
Stanford should be so ashamed of themselves for letting that happen, but it yeah. did. Mm. And so the scientific community lost their shit completely. Now, most of science is not that political. Yeah. So what we're seeing is the part where science overlaps with politics. Right. In the world I live in, it's not political at all. So we're just doing our thing. I mean, we're I would think... Would it be correct to say that in some ways you could say science is personal, like where a one scientist looks at the work of another and says, that can't be, and I'm going to prove that's wrong. And and then they spend you know five years personally on a vendetta to go and prove Well, that. I don't think science normally works that way because there's not a lot of upside to picking fights in science. Yep. Okay. So what we're, it's more of an infinitely expanding universe and we're all carving out a, a galaxy to work on. Right. And, and if you're lucky, you get something that that reaches and touches other people in other areas. So, so for example, the, the strength of my own program after 42 years was is that we had tremendous impact on pharma. Mm. And, and so it's very hard for someone to say, well, what you do is not worth shit. And I go, well, don't tell the guys at Merck or Pfizer or Santa Fe Aventis because we did it. We did a ton for them. Right. And we saved them gazillions of dollars on some stuff. And, and mm. so... So that, that's kind of a metric for me. But so I don't think scientists generally fight like crazy. It no. could be true in another, another other disciplines. I once mm. did a poll for someone and he was surprised when I said, no, I don't see any of that or that or that. No. They were asking me. And it may be. But chemists, I think, are not candy asses. So, no. so I don't know. I, mm. I, I think there are fields of science where the corruption is much more profound. I think the here's what I would not trust at this point. I wouldn't trust the biomedical community at all. Now, I know there's good work being done, right? Yeah. Whoever invented Imodium, give that person a Nobel Prize, right? But I think I think some of the most bizarre bad science is done where where medicine meets meets society, meets science, the triple right. overlap of those. And in, that, in that's, that's what created the COVID mess. When COVID started to happen here in Thailand, I knew, first thing, you know, I have a couple general rules. Number one, never trust politicians. And the second one is never trust bureaucrats. Like that's just, they got to earn that. And right. the number three is businesses are, the motive of business is profit. And then number four is majority of people will just follow. And those are kind of my guiding principles. And when I saw the whole COVID thing, I as a financial analyst, I'm able to, you know, at least go through every every medical academic paper that I could to try to understand. And I went through everything that I could. And I the first thing I did is went down and bought ivermectin and vitamin D because I knew number one, there's no vi vaccine. If the vaccine is effective and is necessary, it ain't coming to Thailand anytime soon. And so yeah, I, right. You guys weren't at the front of the line. No. And if and, you were, then you'd be real nervous because you go, oh my God, the US scientists yeah. are using Thai as as guinea pigs, right? Yeah, so exactly. you don't want to be at the head of that line either. Exactly. And um, then I live with my 86-year-old my mother. So, you know, I have to understand, you know, the risks based upon age and comorbidities and all that. And then and then I was wondering why, for instance, why in Thailand and in Vietnam the deaths were minimal. Wow, right. in Africa. The well, the other strange thing is, remember when it first broke out, we were getting videos out of China? They look pretty fake to me. <laughs> right away, I'm going, wait a minute. Yeah. The lady's walking down the street and she just does a face plant? Yeah. Aren't you in bed by that point in time? <laughs> and then welding people in their apartments. I go, isn't that a little dramatic? And, you know, 
kilns running, you know, 24 seven burning bodies and claims of sulfur yeah. dioxide clouds. And I'm going, they're just, they're just office residential towers that are dark because everyone in there's a rotting corpse. And I'm going, and there's just something about people being thrown in the back of ambulances who supposedly are, are, are infected and, and watching them go in there, putting up a pretty goddamn good fight for an infected person, right? So I smelled, yeah. a, I smelled a problem with a Chinese story. But then uh, it didn't take me long. I hadn't paid no, I had paid no attention to Fauci. Mm. None whatsoever. Yeah. What I will tell your audience now is if they haven't figured this out, Fauci is a mass murderer by any metric. Mm. I'm not talking a mass murderer because he's a bonehead and he blew COVID. He has been a mass murderer for 35 years, and I'm not being metaphorical. He should be taken to The Hague, tried for crimes against humanity, and hung from the neck until dead. Mm. Now, that is Fauci. And if you haven't read Anthony, the real Anthony Fauci by Kennedy, you're missing a real treat. I bet you have. I, I um, have it's it's on my shelf, but it's not in front of me right now. But that's well, I'll get the audio book. There's now a documentary that covers it. OK. And then yep. the second one to follow up on is Sickening by John Abramson. Now, Sickening, Kennedy hates Fauci to his core because Kennedy's been bird dogging him for 30 years. But Abramson is the guy who who discovered the Vox was killing people. Mm. And, and he then became sort of center of this, what the hell's going on with the FDA. If you read Sickening, you will conclude that the FDA has completely fallen apart. Yeah. And that the clinical trial system is about as accurate as, wait a minute, this one will make sense to your audience, about as accurate as the bond rating agencies in 07. Same incentive problem, too. You rate our bonds well, we'll keep giving you business. You give it, you clear our drugs, you give us good clinical data, some fly-by-night company that does clinical trials, you'll get another gig out of us, right? And so, oh, my God, Pfizer's drug looks fantastic. Well, it turns out that if you read Abramson's book, you will discover it's called sickening. You will discover that they can push through a drug even if it doesn't have any positive effects whatsoever. So I'm just looking at it on uh, Amazon and I'll have it in the show notes and it's got, it's about a 4.6 out of five with a, about 200 ratings on it. And uh, I haven't listened to it. So I'm going to, I'm definitely going to. Um, so you're an audiophile too. Yeah. I mean, I love reading. I love audiobooks. Yeah. I love audio. There's certain ones. Kennedy's book on uh, his personal life story, American story or something. I can't remember the name of it, but that. That was really great on Audible, you know, to listen to his telling his story. Family Values or American Values, something like that. I can't remember the name right now, but that, that was a good book. One of the, the I, I teach an ethics and finance class here in Thailand. And one of the, I have debates and I try to help the young kids get, you know, the ability to analyze the pros and cons of things. And, you know, one of the things I asked, I said that it would, I tried, I tried to trip them up a bit and I said, it would be against ESG policies to invest right. in a <clears throat> pharmaceutical company because of the past history of criminal activity and prosecutions right. or criminal fines. And I, you know, had a really good debate on that. Of, no, no, that wouldn't be a problem. Well, it'd also be unethical to use that for, for investing too, right? There's the whole ERISA rule. Yeah, and so so the question is, should should ESG even exist? That's a I whole... own tobacco companies. It's not out of morality. Yep, 
Yeah. And that's uh so it it started an interesting debate they hadn't even really thought about. And I I posted something on uh on LinkedIn called 26 reasons why I'm anti-ESG. And uh, you know, there's a lot of things that I see wrong with it, but one of the things I see wrong with it is uh it weakens democracy in the sense that all of a sudden we start to think that businesses are going to solve our political problems and social problems. And you know, I I have a factory in Thailand and I follow every regulation from the regulators that come down my pipe, you know, here, you know, don't, here's where the water's got to be treated by the time it leaves your factory. Here's how the air's got to be treated. You know, here's the rules on how you can treat employees and you have to pay severance pay and all that. I follow all those rules. And my point to the ESG movement is that if you really want change in society, then you've got to affect that through the political system and apply that across all. If they say, look, we want companies to release less you know, chemicals into the water, then set the new standard and pass it through a parliamentary or a congressional process right. where people have a have ability to have a say. And then and then you permanently implement whatever that great Well the other thing that drives me nuts in Ukraine this really bothered the hell out of me is because everyone all got weepy eyed over Zelensky. Zelensky's a total slime ball, complete and utter slime ball. And I call it the sanctimony industrial complex. These are people who go, you know, Putin's bad, Zelensky's good. What else do we need to talk about? And I go, well, you have not yet in any way, shape or form dug into what Zelensky's done mm. and, and what he's doing. I think people are getting it now. So I think this is a short-lived grift, but it, it was a spectacular one. A lot of dead Ukrainians. So Zelensky and Biden could both get rich. I have real trouble with the people get all sanctimonious about Ukraine. I said, okay, okay, let's back out a bit. Name which country, U.S. or Russia, bombed more countries over the last 20 years. Okay, okay, okay. Name which country has killed more people with military weapons over the last 20 years, right? And you go, don't forget that we killed, according to Madeleine Albright, 500,000 Iraqi children. And you're sitting there having a shit fit over a war in Ukraine. And you're ignoring the fact that we gave the weapons to the Saudis to bomb the Yemenis into oblivion. And you're forgetting about the fact that last year we bombed Syria three times to send a message to Tehran. And as I put it, I don't remember Tehran being in Syria. So we bombed one country to send a message to another country. Why is that not a war crime? Why isn't Biden in The Hague? Got me. I'd mm. shoot him. And Recently, Biden was in uh, in Kiev, and um, oh God, I was, I was watching, hoping something I, would come up with something clever. I thought, I thought, you know, I I just I had a little glimmer of hope and thought, okay, so Biden and Zelensky are figuring out Zelensky's exit, so that he's not hanging they should the pole. They should be. Which the history of Americans support. Now, but here's the problem: if they were really figuring out the exit, it wouldn't be Biden there. Yeah. It would be some guy whose name we may or may not know, you know, the analog of Kissinger, whatever, and they're saying, okay, here's the deal. You know how to end the war. You and I both know how to end the war. If we said today, we're sending you no more money, no more weapons, how many days would it take Solonsky to sign a deal with Putin? Five? Long enough to make the phone calls and get get, get security in place and make the deal? We are killing Ukrainians for U.S. purposes. We are arming them to go get slaughtered. And how? what is your prediction about how long it will last? 
I'm a contrarian on that too. And that is, I'm a contrarian amongst those who are screaming about how bad the war is. I don't think it'll last much longer. I think, I believe, and if you want to pay attention to this, you got to read guys like Aaron Mattei, Greenwald, McGregor, Ritter, guys <clears throat> like that, uh, Max Blumenthal, <laughs> and McGregor in particular, who's a very high-level former military guy, says that the Ukrainians are getting pasted. They are getting tattooed. They are getting mm. slaughtered. So we talk about sending 31 Abrams tanks over. First of all, they're not there. Second of all, we're going to send the ones without the good armor because we don't dare let the Russians get a hold of one of those. And it will take to take out 31 tanks. How many shells? 31. <laughs> so 31 Abrams tanks. What are you going to defend with 31 Abrams tanks? The Sunoco station in Kiev? What, what, what the hell are they going to do, right? So this is all theater except for Ukrainians being handed weapons and sent out to the front and get killed. McGregor says it's somewhere between six and 10 to one death ratio, Ukrainian to Russia. The idea that the Russian army is incompetent, I'm not qualified to know, but I know a lot of smart guys who are saying the Russian army could crush them. They're being very, very methodical. And these putative retreats are all tactical. They're not the Russians scampering away because they suck. They're sucking Ukrainians into places they want them to be and then end running them and going down and slaughtering more Azov Italian guys. So what what is the end game? I mean, how does it end? For instance, is it that when when America sees 200 billion going there and catastrophes happening in America and feeling like, oh, wait, we got to stop this or is it money? Americans don't seem to ever say. I don't see evidence our opinion matters. I did a poll the other day that basically said, what should we do in Ukraine? I can't remember how I worded it, but it was basically, what should we do in Ukraine? Like 86% has got the hell out. So, so we don't support the war. The problem is we didn't support the lockdowns. You know, if, if you actually poll people, you don't just accept that what the news is telling you. No one believes in the vaccines anymore. No one believes, you know, everyone seems to know ivermectin work. And yet, you know, and my God, masking? Mm. Holy Jesus. In, read John Barry's 2005 book on the great influenza. He talks about how masks do nothing. <laughs> and and so, so the masking story was never legit. And so, but that doesn't seem to matter to the people calling the shots. Yeah, let's and talk about that. Got I me just, despondent. That's what's I, got me despondent. Yeah. And that I'm just looking at that poll that you did on February 22nd. There was 1,200 people that responded. Now, of course, there's a probably a political leaning to the people that are responding. As in the whack job wing of the Republican Party, that one? Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. It says, social awareness poll, what should the U.S. be doing in Ukraine? Send in U.S. troops, increase support, stay the current course, or pull out, let shit happen. 86% of people on your Twitter or that saw this through your post said, pull out, let shit happen. There's 7.6% that said, stay the course. So even if we adjust for maybe the political leanings of the people that answered that, you probably get down to maybe 50, 60% that would probably- oh, So I that. often do political polls. I'll do polls where it's really a binary question. Yep. If it's a binary question, I'll add to it, do you lean left or right? Right. 
And that way I get the left saying yes and no, and I get the right saying yes and no, and that tells me more. And it shows you what my Twitter following is. But, you know, don't forget, once it escapes the containment field, it's off to the races, right? And so 1,200 might be a lot of mine, but it's starting to escape the containment field. And then whenever I do those left-right polls, I invariably have people say, why don't we left or right? And I go, get a therapist. Get a therapist. You lean left or right. Don't give me that crap. You know, maybe you don't support Trump, but I don't care. You lean left or right. You know mm. full well, right? Mm. And you can be a left-leaning libertarian or a right-leaning libertarian, but you still lean left or right. So, but they um, they they think they're so smart they don't even even lean left or right. So, uh, in the interest of time, I think that we're going to skip the big question on this podcast, and we're going to maybe we'll get a chance to revisit that later about your worst investment. But I would like, since you've got so many different things going on and things that you've got strong opinions about, what I'd like to do is ask you two questions. The number one question is kind of what's a resource that you would recommend to our listeners to understand and learn more about the things that you're seeing? And then maybe you could leave us with what's maybe a lesson that you've learned or something that you really want people to pay attention to. So a resource and a lesson or a focus point that you want the audience to remember. Well, I'm sure your audience knows this. You can't believe anything coming out of mainstream media now. Fact checkers are worthless shills that are prostitutes. So if if my cardinal rule is that the more fact checkers, the more likely the thing they're checking is true. Mm. And my favorite book of the year, the one that really got into my soul, was called The True Believer by Eric Hoffer in 1953, in which he talks about mob psychology and mass movements. And as you read, it's about half the length of a normal book. Some guy emphatically told me to read it. I had I didn't know about it. And, and it was just as I'm reading, I'm going, there it is, there it is, there it is. So now... I would like to emphasize also audiobooks. I wish I'd been told this. Of course, they didn't exist in the numbers they exist now. But when I drive to work, it's 12 minutes each way. My wife says, would you go to the store? She's not asked me to do an annoying favor. She's asked me to read for 10 minutes each way. <laughs> and when I go on a long trip, I can do a whole audiobook in one trip. And I will... I have a wish list and I have, I buy a couple and then I just, I finish one and I go, what do I want now? So it's the same as saying, okay, do I want take out Mexican or take out Chinese or take out Thai, right? And I just mow through probably 25 audiobooks a year. And instead of listening to talk radio, instead of listening to your favorite tunes or instead of, instead of chasing podcasts, sorry, it's your world, but an audiobook is a one, one decision move where you get about 10 or 12 hours out of it. The other thing is you almost always finish. You don't have those mm. faded yellow post-its hanging outside the book at chapter five. Yeah, yeah. It just, it just keeps rolling along on you. And, and very so I think that's a great, it's a great point and a great, I'm going to, I'm looking at the true believer thoughts on the nature of mass movements. Eric Hoffer is the author. brilliant. Okay. It is brilliant. So I'm going to have, Links to that as well as sickening in the show notes. And let's say those are two. And the, the real Anthony Fauci. Yeah. <laughs> That's another one. So I'll have those three. Those are great resources. And as you say, the audible aspect of those, of any book is great. And the point and the people that you that know it, every one of them is 10 bucks. So I have a book I was listening to the other day, which is a trimester length course. What, 18 lectures. It costs 10 bucks. 
Incredible. By one of the world's most famous linguists about the origin of language. Ten bucks. Right? How do you beat that? And the idea, too, about books that's great is that what I love about books is that you know that there's a person who put in a huge amount of effort to bring it to a coherent, you know. Thousands uh, of man hours. Thousands of man hours yep. brought yep. to you through your phone. For 10 bucks. <laughs> For 10 and, bucks. And what's something that you want the listeners to to understand? So you've provided a good resource there, but what's something that you want the listeners to really wake up to? Okay, I'm going to give you my finance pitch. Okay. This is something I assembled and I, it's now my elevator speech. In my opinion, the markets are roundly 2x overvalued. I've got 25 metrics of valuation I track. Every one of them says 2x overvalued. You can say they're not, but I can whip your ass. I guarantee you, I can yeah. just flop them in front of your face and you will not be. And you got to come up with some new era thinking. So here's the problem. The last 40 years will not be repeated, in my opinion. Mm. And a guy named Murray Stahl gave me some of this information. Some of it's my own. In the early 80s, Russia was collapsing. The Soviet Union was collapsing. There were another decade before they were done, but they had to sell resources to get capital. So we got the world flooded with cheap resources and from other countries. The world was globalized. The Chinese were totally starved for cash, literally under 40,000 in their banking system and U.S. reserves. Mm. And they had to get capital and they sold labor dirt cheap. The demographic model, which most economists endorse enthusiastically, the boomers were just hitting stride. So the biggest glut of workers in U.S. history yep. were starting their work lives. They brought their wives with them. Interest rates went from 16% down to essentially zero. And if you read Buffett's 1999 article, he'll say that's the whole game right there. It's the direct, it's not whether rates are low or high, it's whether rates are dropping or rising. So once rates are super low, that's not bullish. That means you're done. Yep. And so, so rates went from 16% monotonically down to 0% over four decades. And during that period, back to the valuation model, valuations rose on average 3% annualized over those 40 years. Valuations. If you think the next 40 is going to repeat that, you need a CAT scan. And that is a wrap on another great discussion to help us create, grow, and protect our well fellow risk takers. Let's celebrate that today we've added one more person to join our mission to help 1 million people reduce risk in their lives. This is your worst podcast host, Andrew Stott, saying, I'll see you on the upside. And Dave, thank you so much for your time and your opinions. My pleasure.